Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the book of Jonah, um, that it is uh, a fun book, but even more so that it uh, tells us about who you are, and it also uh, shows us ourselves. Father, I thank you for this time tonight where we can uh, work through chapter 2, Jonah's prayer, together. And I pray, Father, for each of us here tonight that you would... uh, open our hearts and our minds to hear you speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's be honest straight up. Jonah 2 is a weird bit of the Bible. Uh, There aren't too many other prayers from the belly of a fish throughout the rest of the Bible, not any, in fact, except here in Jonah 2. So how did we get here? Well, last week, chapter 1, we heard God tell Jonah to go and preach in Nineveh, capital city of the Assyrians, the vicious arch enemies of Israel. But Jonah flees instead to Tarshish, far as possible in the opposite direction. So God sends a storm to stop his ship Uh, And the storm is is just about to kill everyone on board with Jonah until he finally admits to his shipmates, hey, it's actually all because of me, (laughs) and they have to throw him overboard. But God doesn't leave Jonah to die. He miraculously sends a huge fish to save Jonah from drowning, and after three days and three nights in its belly, Jonah praise the prayer we've heard in Jonah chapter 2. Now, obviously, we've got questions. You do, I do. Like, uh, what kind of fish could swallow Jonah whole without chewing him up first? Uh, How did he breathe in there? Did God provide an air pocket too? Didn't the fish have some kind of stomach acid over three days? Wouldn't that have dissolved Jonah to some extent? All great questions, which the person got inspired to write this story had absolutely zero interest in answering. Um, Obviously, the God who, like, created the entire universe is not going to have a problem keeping Jonah alive for a few days. He's not going to be like, well, I've mastered billions of galaxies, but I'm not sure how to handle this ocean situation. Obviously, God could have made this happen. But the fact that the uh, author completely ignores all these obvious practicalities does make a lot of people wonder, what kind of story is this meant to be? Is this meant to be historical? Or is it more a story with a purely theological point, a point about like humanity and God a bit like Christ's parables. Now that is an interesting question too. But if you think about it, Jonah's message for us about God and humanity, it is actually going to be the same whether it's also meant to be historical or not. Okay, so the more important question is, what part does this prayer in chapter 2 play in that overall message of the book? Now, um, when I went to to Bible college, actually at QGC, just around the corner there, 
Uh, you have to read what Bible scholars say about different books. And it's interesting, a lot of Bible scholars would say, this prayer of Jonah doesn't actually belong in the book at all. They say much of what it says doesn't fit with what we heard back in chapter 1. They say uh, it's actually just, a, the, the whole prayer is just quotes from the book of Psalms, one after another. And they reckon the story flows well without the prayer. So, so they reckon probably someone added this prayer to the book later in order to make Jonah look more godly, like the kind of guy who prays just like the book of Psalms, particularly since he is so ungodly everywhere else. How does that theory strike you? Are you convinced? <laughs> um, no offence to those Bible scholars, I reckon that totally misses the point. Yes, Jonah's prayer doesn't fit with chapter 1, which actually just highlights how self-deceived Jonah is. Yes, Jonah's prayer is one quote from the book of Psalms after another, which just shows how godly Jonah thinks he is when he isn't. Far from being irrelevant to the whole story of Jonah, chapter 2, this is actually the bit where we get to see Jonah's own heart. He reveals it, but not deliberately. He reveals it in what he prays, but even more by what he doesn't pray. In the rest of the book, see, we, we see Jonah's bad actions, here we see actually the heart which produces those actions. We're going to step through three main themes in Jonah's prayer. And as we do, we're going to be forced to ask, well, hang on, if this is Jonah's heart and he's an esteemed prophet of Israel, how much is that going on in my heart too? The first theme of Jonah's prayer is that he blames God for his predicament, forgetting that it all started with his own sin. So verse 3 and 4, see it there. He prays to God, when you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me, all your breakers and all your billows swept over me, and I said, I have been banished from your sight. Banished from God's sight? Jonah, did you forget? <laughs> Mate, you ran from God's sight. God said, go to Nineveh. You hopped on a boat and said, one ticket to not Nineveh, please. <laughs> not banished, you ran. This all started with Jonah's sin, yet he blames God. Now, God did send a storm to halt Jonah's flight. But it was Jonah's flight that brought it all on. Actually, Jonah himself realized this at the time. That's why he told his fellow sailors to throw him overboard. Yet now he says to God, you threw me into the depths. Now, all throughout this prayer, Jonah is quoting various psalms. Uh, and, you know, Psalms are a part of the Bible. They're inspired by God. So that, that must be a good thing, right, to quote the Psalms. 
But if you read these particular Psalms, like Psalm 18, uh, 42, 69, etc., you'll see they all are about innocent suffering. Some suffering in the Bible is because of your own sin, but the Bible is very clear that a lot of our suffering is not because of our, our own sin. A lot of our suffering is innocent suffering. That's why there are all these psalms which express innocent suffering. The question is, are these the psalms that are appropriate for Jonah to be quoting here? <laughs> is Jonah an innocent sufferer? Isn't Jonah far from innocent? If Jonah was going to quote any psalms here, there actually are some psalms that would have been appropriate. Psalms of confession. Like Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave all my guilt. Or Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, God. Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Now, if you've got Jonah 2 in front of you still on your phone or in a Bible, I want you to do something. I want you to just run through it quickly again. You tell me one place he says anything even remotely like that. Jonah doesn't confess his sin. Not once does he even hint that he did a single thing wrong. Is he conscious of his rebellion is his sin always before him not even close friends the book of Jonah is warning us don't be like Jonah you can know your Bible just like Jonah you can quote it word for word over and over you can even be a religious leader like Jonah but can you admit you've sinned? Jonah had the Psalms which pointed him to the need of confessing his sin. If you follow Jesus, you have something even stronger, the death of Jesus for your sins. The Apostle John up on the screen says, the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jonah deceived himself. But how crazy if we do that when we have Jesus who has already died the death we deserve for our sins to cleanse us. If we have Jesus, why, why not just confess your sins and be forgiven? 
Sometimes we're slow to. I think, I think part of it is that as Christians, we do know that we're meant to have turned from a life of sin to a life of following Jesus. And so it does hurt to admit, oh, actually, I've fallen back into those old sins or, or even started new ones. But until Jesus remakes the world, Christians aren't meant to be sinless. Our Christian superpower that, that Jesus gives us isn't that we won't sin again. Our Christian superpower is that we can quickly and freely confess our sins, turning from them, knowing they're already dealt with by Jesus. In the rest of the book, Jonah, I'm sorry if I sound mean saying this, but, but he is actually a joke. <laughs> he, he is laughable. And, and, and the author of the book is making him laughable, particularly in this, that he can see sin in other people, like the Assyrians, just not in himself. He's such a hypocrite, it's laughable. And the book is saying, don't be that guy. Don't be a Jonah, a hypocrite who hates sin in others and pretends not to sin yourself. All of us, we, we come to God through Jesus only when we see that, that stuff that I've always hated in other people. The selfishness, the pride, greed, dishonesty, unfairness, lack of love. All that stuff out there, it's in here too. And Jesus frees you to admit that. You don't have to deceive yourself or others. You can just be open and honest with yourself and with God. You can just say, God, this is what I've done. This is what I'm like. Thank you so much that you know all that. And in Jesus, you love me anyway. Is today the day you could be open and honest with God like that. The second theme which reveals Jonah's heart is he actually credits himself with his own salvation. See, he can't see his sin and he actually thinks he's been saved because of all the good things that he's done himself. He thinks he's saved because he's better than other people. You see it first in the way, the, uh, through most of his prayer, the emphasis is in, on what he himself did in order to get rescued. So verse 2 there, I called, I cried out. Verse 4, I said, I will look once more to your holy temple. So pious. Verse 7, all, as my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you. Lucky Jonah's such a great guy, eh? <laughs> I mean, without all of this action on his own initiative, he'd never be saved. It's funny that the storyteller never mentioned 
uh, Jonah's prayers as the key thing causing his rescue. (laughs) The inspired narrator just says it was God who appointed the fish to save Jonah, but Jonah knows. (laughs) And here's the thing. When you think you've saved yourself through good deeds, you do end up thinking that you are better than other people. So it's in verse nine, 8 and 9. Jonah contrasts himself with non-Israelites who worship other gods. He says, Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me... I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. Jonah thinks he is better than non-Israelites because he's faithful to the true God. And that's why he's been saved. There is just the teeny tiny problem that he's been anything but faithful to the true God this whole time. But remember, he can't see his sin. He thinks he has been faithful, and that's crucial, actually, to the whole rest of the book. As Philip will show us the next couple of weeks, Jonah finally does preach in Nineveh, like he was meant to originally, and astonishingly, they repent. They actually do acknowledge their evil, unlike Jonah, and God forgives them. Such great news, right? Well, not for Jonah. It sets Jonah right off. As Sam showed us already, Jonah actually says to God, See, I told you. That's why I ran away in the first place. I knew you're a bleeding heart, softy. I knew you'd be like, Oh, if they repent, I must forgive them. That is so you, God. But them, these disgusting Assyrians, they must never be forgiven. Now, as we've seen, Jonah himself is a huge recipient of God's mercy. Wouldn't even acknowledge his own sin, God saved him anyway. The Assyrians fully acknowledge their sin Yet Jonah doesn't want them to receive any of the same mercy he has received. Why not? Because, as we've seen in chapter 2, Jonah can't see his sin. He thinks he's been saved by doing good things, that he's better than non-Israelites like the Assyrians. See, Jonah has got absolutely no sense of God's mercy to him, which is why he's got absolutely no desire for God's mercy to other people. This was actually a huge problem in Christ's day too. So Jesus came to forgive sins, which meant that Everyone who knew they're a sinner, well, they flocked to Jesus. And he forgives sin, so so he welcomed them and he ate with them and he drank with them. But the religious leaders like the scribes and Pharisees, 
No way. Why not? The religious leaders didn't think of themselves as sinners needing forgiveness. Like Jonah, they thought of themselves as righteous and better than those horrible sinners. Which is why they resented other sinners being forgiven. Your attitude to others being forgiven says an awful lot about how your, your, your own attitude to your own sin. If you know you're a forgiven sinner yourself, then you're quick to forgive sin in other people and celebrate that forgiveness. But if you're not quick to forgive sin in other people, that shows you don't yet see yourself as a forgiven sinner too. You can actually see how ugly this gets with cancel culture nowadays. One uh, small example, I know there are like much more controversial ones, but uh, a small one is uh, the kids show Bluey recently had an episode about exercise, which starts with the parents weighing themselves on scales and lamenting the fact that they've grown big tummies. Of course, it sparked outrage across the internet for fat shaming and fat phobia. And the creators uh, realized this and quickly re-edited the episode to remove that beginning bit. But even after they did that, some people still said they were going to boycott the show because it shows how careless it is in what it says to kids. In cancel culture, there is no way back, no chance of forgiveness. There's actually good research that shows that Gen Z is way more self-censoring than any of the previous generations. Which actually makes sense when you think about growing up in a world where one wrong word on Twitter, or I guess X now, <laughs> one wrong word on social media can ruin your whole life. Living in a culture of no forgiveness is actually horrible. And I reckon it's no coincidence that that cancel culture has risen hand in hand with virtue signaling. You know what I mean? Like, like showing how virtuous you are by the causes you support on Instagram or whatever. Because you can only say someone has done something so bad they can never be forgiven if at the same time you are pretending that you yourself are virtuous. People couldn't possibly condemn others so completely if at the same time they admitted, do you know what, I do bad things too. <laughs> and it actually can happen among Christians. I mean, you may say the words, I'm a sinner. You may pray the prayer, God, please forgive my sins, but your actions speak louder than words, 
You show you don't really believe you're a sinner if you won't forgive someone who turns from their sin. If you judge people as if they're worse than you. Why are they so irregular at church? Why don't they serve as much as me? Uh, How can they spend their money like that? How can conservatives be so heartless? How can progressives be so brainless? Don't you have judgmental thoughts sometimes? Judging people shows you've forgotten you're a forgiven sinner yourself. But let the book of Jonah remind you how laughably wrong that is. We actually get to be a community of mercy to each other when we each remember God's mercy to ourselves. The final theme of Jonah's prayer is highlighted in the final words. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a straight quote from Psalm 3. But it is such a strange way to end a prayer which has gone line by line emphasising not God, but Jonah's own role. (laughs) In fact, this ending seems to make God sick. (laughs) Verse 10 says, God commanded the fish to vomit Jonah. So many other words could have been used. (laughs) But with this word, it gives the impression that God was listening, going, oh, Jonah, you didn't. (laughs) You did not just emphasize your own role all through your prayer and then finish with a pious sounding, oh, but salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah, that's so sick, I can only respond with vomit. (laughs) After everything Jonah prayed about himself, it is kind of sick, but... This ending is also the one true thing in Jonah's whole prayer. For sinners like Jonah, for sinners like you and me, there is no salvation except by God himself. That's actually what Jesus was saying about himself when he made reference back to Jonah 2. See, religious leaders came to Jonah demanding a sign, some proof that he really is the saviour sent by God. So Jesus responds, well, only an evil generation would ask for more proof after all the miracles you've seen me do. So the only undeniable proof I'm going to give you is when I've died been buried in the earth three days and nights, and I rise again, just like Jonah was buried in the belly of the fish three days and nights, and rose again from that. Jonah's burial in the fish and then rising again showed salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus dying for our sins and rising again shows 
He is the Lord to whom salvation belongs. We're actually lucky to live after the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have a chance to see that for sinners like us, there is no salvation apart from him. Do you see it? If you haven't realised it before, is today the day when you do? That there is no salvation from your sins except in Jesus, his death and his resurrection for you. You can just come to Jesus in prayer and say, thank you so much for saving me like no one else could. A friend of mine, Pete, became a Christian and uh, a while later we were talking and I was asking him how it was going following Jesus. He goes, oh, it's just a relief, you know? I'm like, um, not sure I do know. What do you mean by a relief? Pete's like, oh, just not having to pretend I'm a good person. <laughs> it is hard work every time you do something wrong, trying to make excuses. I was stressed, I had good reasons, I'm still better than most people. Now I'm just, yep, really wish I hadn't done that. But add it to the list of things Jesus already died for. He goes on, hey, even better than that actually, I don't have to care about other people's sin anymore either. Like, to hold a grudge properly, and you know me, Jeremy, everything I do, I like to do properly. <laughs> to hold a grudge properly, you, you, you've got to keep track of how you've been wronged, what they said, what they did. Now I just go, yeah, that hurt. But it's just sin like I do, which can be forgiven. It's such a relief. Through the rest of Jonah chapters 3 and 4, we're going to see him go through so much angst and misery. All because, like we saw right here in chapter 2, he can't see his own sin, so he can't bring himself to accept others being forgiven either. Jesus can save you from that. In fact, he is the only one who can. I want to pray that we would all see that. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we need to confess that we are sinners. Father, knowing that Jesus has already died for our sins, we want to take some time in silence now to confess our sins to you. Things that we should have done and didn't. Things that we have done and shouldn't have. Let's take some time in silence now.